Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Welcome back. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and uh, also resident on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined as usual by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. It's good to be together for our uh, our weekly sit-down here, guys. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. Good to be back. Nate, what's going on with us? What do, we, what do people need to know about us? <laughs> A whole lot's going on with yes. us. <laughs> okay, there but you have it. Moving straight, on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that update. Yeah. yeah. Over to you, Joe. <laughs> well, we've got a lot going on, but specifically in the way of programs, uh, we've got our H. Eben Runner International Academy coming up on June 5th to the 15th in Golden, British Columbia. We're looking forward to heading out there and doing some ministry out west. And uh, the Academy uh, is our most comprehensive training program, and it's for anyone in their 20s and 30s, and there's a focus on cultural apologetics and reformational philosophy. And uh, of course, we look at a biblical worldview and how that applies to the various spheres of life. So medicine, law, education, the arts, etc. And uh, for this program... Uh, can't we, wait to be in the Rockies. That's mm. right. <laughs> Joe can't help himself. <laughs> Break, make sure you have two sets of gloves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we are in the Rockies. Uh, well, and um, yeah, we <laughs> transitioning. <laughs> we always like to uh, make mention of the fact that this program is quite unique in the sense that uh, delegates are staying and living with uh, staff and faculty for the duration of the program. And uh, that's 11 days of training and fellowship. And this year, uh, our speakers include Joe, uh, Andrew Sandlin, Brian Matson, Andre Schutten, Ted Fenske, Tim Stevens. Jenny Boot and Jason Hagen. So we've got a great lineup of speakers, and of course they'll be on site throughout the program uh, mm-hmm. to rub shoulders with, ask questions, glean from their wisdom. Deep and, bench. Uh, yes. Come, a deep bench. A deep yes. bench. A deep bench. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You thought he was referring to bench beer? That'll be that I, as well. I, I expect. I, that's but, right. Uh, yeah. Now I'll find something local. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> something golden. That's right. Yeah. And uh, just uh, lastly, uh, in mentioning the Runner Academy, uh, we've continued to receive several uh, generous donations. So we're now able to uh, offer six full scholarships for the program. And uh, if you're interested in in applying for the program uh, and for a scholarship as well, you can email us at info at EzraInstitute.ca. And uh, one other thing to mention that's coming up Shortly, uh, I made mention of this uh, on last week's episode, but we have our annual Mission of God conference coming up on May 21st, and registration is now online for the conference, and uh, that'll be held here in the Niagara region, and uh, the theme for this year's conference is Utopianism versus the Kingdom of God. So you can go to our website, EzraInstitute.com, and register for the conference, and uh, be sure to do that uh, quickly as last year's conference sold out quite early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mentioned there, EzraInstitute.com. That's a recent change we've made to our, our website and our domain. 
Uh, and there's a lot of uh, reasons behind why we've made that change. And uh, we're going to be discussing those in the weeks ahead, but a lot of exciting things uh, in store for the Ezra Institute and our plans mm-hmm. moving forward. Oh, one thing you also mentioned that uh, that they should email us at ezrainstitute.ca. That's right. That's still correct. Right. Um, there's so those a, email addresses. There are two two different uh, two different things. The email addresses haven't changed. Right. Uh, they will, but uh, we'll uh, we'll get to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Email us uh, as you always have. We love to hear from you. Great. Excellent. All right. So we uh, we left off last week talking about uh, the uh, the nature and origins of totalitarianism, what it uh, what it looks like as an ideology, how it's being manifested uh, now as well as throughout the uh, the twentieth century, and we promised uh, in response to several inquiries and for our own benefit as well to. Uh, to spend this next episode just dealing with what is a what is a godly response? How do you take godly action in response to uh, to a totalitarian state? Hmm. So that's the uh, that's the broad heading under which we're going to uh, going to begin this uh, this conversation. And we started. Uh, started off with by making a list and we're going to uh, work through that list. Joe, one of the uh, and we we say this often in response to many things, but right there at the top of the list uh, in terms of practical steps that Christians can take is prayer. Can we uh, now that 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 sounds on the one hand pious, it sounds good. It also might sound like a cop out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can we? Can you just uh, just explain how, as a uh, as a man with a with a ministry and as a as a ministry ourselves who have not shied away from public controversy, mm-hmm. uh, prayer? The, uh, s- say more about this as an effective weapon for the uh, the godly dissident. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's often overlooked as a weapon hmm. uh, in terms of the way in which we as evangelicals tend to think about prayer. We often think about personal prayer. We think about the development of our personal piety, uh, our personal prayer life, our sometimes our shopping list of prayers, if you will, uh, that we want to get through. And of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. These are all aspects of prayer. But um, I think maybe two things are worth saying. First of all, intercessory prayer does have a, a sort of unique, or seems to have a unique character in Scripture. It's a, it's a certain form of prayer um, where maybe it's for a season, um, maybe for a time. Um, sometimes particular individuals uh, have a, a peculiar calling as well to an intercessory prayer. And that what we mean by that more is that we are we really believe that God is laying something specific upon our hearts to really hang on to him for and uh, uh, you know pray fervently for over an extended period of time in terms of you know trusting and actually asking God to fulfill certain covenant promises that he's made, in scripture. In fact, one of our fellows, um, Dr. Andrew Sandlin, 
frequently talks about prayer actually right. on our um in our programs you mm-hmm. know i think sometimes uh you know a christian philosophy cultural apologetics can be misunderstood uh as somehow dry arid academic abstract right. thinking yeah. when it is in fact about a, a an entire life the fullness of our life the totality of our life devoted to god and um uh, in its religious root, in in the heart, the religious root of the person. Mm -hmm. And of course, that absolutely um, centers around communication with God. And God communicates to us in in clear terms through his word. And um, our prayers, in that sense, are a response. It's part of our response to God. We often talk about how human existence is religious because it is our response to the word of God. And prayer is an aspect of that response. We are responding in a particular way, uh, to the Word of God mm. when we pray. And uh, there can be seasons in our lives and times in life when we need to be peculiarly given to prayer. And, of course, a time when your um, culture is in dire straits, a time when your country is in a terrible mess, a time when oppression is you know, closing in. Well, not a surprise to find that those are times when often people uh will be christians will be uh, sensing that they need to go to the lord in prayer um with a greater diligence than perhaps they've been you know accustomed to mm-hmm. so prevailing prayer we might call it i think is a really important part of our response to times of cultural crisis and times of uh, oppression the oppression of the state in particular um and uh daring prayers bold prayers big prayers uh, are the kind of prayers that we need to pray. And sometimes, you know, that that doesn't mean that it's a 24-hour prayer meeting. It means that the, uh, because you could spend a great deal of time in prayer praying over trivialities, it means that we take God's covenant word as yes and amen in Jesus Christ in its fullness. Sometimes, especially as Reformed people, we can be very um, taken up with wanting to for our prayers to be, be proper or sound proper and to mm-hmm. be caveated appropriately mm. by theological terms like you know well if the lord wills right. and yeah. uh you know um if in your providence or, or or as though we need to somehow focus our attention on the decretive or secret will of god well that it that is not acce- accessible to us mm-hmm. um, we don't want to seem like we're asking for too much right and uh, and i think mm. sometimes also in not wanting to fall into the uh the traps and mistakes of prosperity, uh, um, health and wealth type um, uh, messaging, um, uh, you know, where you're sort of naming and claiming that your favorite yacht, uh, we can lose sight of the fact that actually all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we're not to be taken up with the secret decretive will of God, which to which we have no access, but with the covenant will of God. That's what we're to be concerned with. What is it that God has revealed in his word uh, that we can, and we'll come to this uh, a bit later on in Isaiah 61, but but, but what is it that we can uh, lay hold on God for in terms of his covenant word? And um, surely amongst those are justice and freedom, um, uh, freedom to serve God, freedom to worship God, uh, and um, the well-being of the people of God, and indeed the prosperity of the people of God. So uh, I think that um, we need to see prayer not just as a tool for the development of our personal 
lives, our personal spiritual disciplines, but also see it as one of the weapons of our warfare that isn't carnal, right? It's a, it is a, it is a, uh, it is a weapon. Um, and, um, it's in a sense, it's, you know, as we, especially in prayer, as we wield the sword of the spirit, which is Paul says the word of God, uh, and, um, we're wearing that helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and, and the, the belt of truth that's round our waist and the, the sandals of the gospel of peace, uh, and we're holding that, that shield of faith. We do so in prayer with a tremendous confidence and a hope and a, a, a course hope that does not disappoint um, in the ability of God, the omnipotent God of Scripture, uh, who's given us of his spirit to meet with us and hear and answer prayer. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that it's part of the, if we can say, the arsenal of the Christian. And so that's where I think it it falls into this. Let's Let's not imprison prayer in the development of my personal piety, as though that's some sort of segregated area from culture and the rest of life, uh, that um, it isn't just about my internal motions with respect to my sins and so on. That's certainly part of prayer, but it's actually to do with what God wants to do in the world through his kingdom. And if we Mm -hmm. ask anything in accordance with his will, Mm -hmm. we know that he hears us. And you look at the assurances that Jesus gives us throughout the the word of God um, and his teaching about what we can go to God with as a father who longs to give good gifts to his that's children. Right. Yeah. Um, Nathan, you well, look like yeah. you've opened the Bible there, so why that's don't, right. you know, I don't want well, to preempt just, just you. Well, so. just everything you're saying reminds me of Matthew chapter 7. I think mm-hmm. it bears a reading here, but uh, starting in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Mm-hmm. Right. So again, that's just thinking mm-hmm. back to your comment about asking things in his will. But hes it's very clear here that we are to be bold and mm-hmm. to knock at the door yeah. and to approach with confidence. And his will is revealed in scripture. So it's not sort of a mystery that we have to uncover um, in some um, ethereal sense. Right. But it's it's there in his covenant. Mm -hmm. We ask in terms of his will and we know that he hears us. Mm -hmm. And so that has to be one of the, I think, critical tools uh, to not put too... I don't want to use a crude term for for prayer because it's it's many things. But Mm -hmm. one of the things it is is a weapon. It's a tool Mm -hmm. for the God's ambassadors, God's army in the struggle against spiritual darkness, in the struggle against the kingdom of darkness. And I think sometimes the less we caveat our prayers with sort of proper theological commentary Mm. and the more we actually go to God with boldness before the throne of grace as sons, Mm. as daughters of the king, um, we can ask for big and bold things for his kingdom and expect Right. dramatic answers and i can attest to that in my own christian life in terms of the, the church planting and the school planting and the institute establishment and so on mm-hmm. that that uh, that bold uh kingdom vision and prayer um god answers with big bold responses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's uh it's making me think as as you talk about prayer as a weapon i don't uh, i i don't object to that at any in any way 
But it also makes me think that you know, uh, military strategy 101, the, the rule is that in order for a unit of any size to be effective, needs to be able to move, shoot, and communicate. Mm-hmm. If you take away any of those, you make it, you take it out of the field. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. uh, that communication is, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. prayer as communication with God is, is going to be crucial. And I think there's a, there's good reason, I guess, to, uh, just to theologically consider it as a weapon. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes that prayer might be as brief as, as, uh, uh, I think Doug Wilson once humorously said, uh, Geronimo, amen. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, it was uh, about uh, starting a Christian school. Right. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, and, and I can absolutely attest to that, that it really is, you know, why do we need any further um, years of discernment to mm. know what's already revealed in God's covenant word that we are to train up our children in this area of education, for example, in the way they should go? Um, and to teach our children the faith and to, uh, to apply the fullness of the word of God. Um, you don't need 12 months of discernment as to whether there should be Christian education. We need to say, Geronimo, amen, mm-hmm. and be mm-hmm. obedient. And God responds to that kind of prayer too, right? Mm-hmm. Because it involves prayer and action are so closely tied together. Prayer is a part of our action. It's, 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 uh, it's not separate from it. It's mm. a form of engagement, yeah. and it's tied to all the other aspects of Christian engagement in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's great, Joe. And as we move on to um, some other practical responses for people that are thinking about how do I push back against uh, a totalitarian government, um, government overreach, uh, we've we've talked at length encouraging people to write letters to their MPPs, their MPs, and to be honest, you do get the sense people are a little tired of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as it seems to many that the needle really hadn't been moved, um, but and you, you got you got your form responses. That's like right, yeah. Auto responders from their offices, exactly. Um, but uh, recently, uh, you had a, a big hand in drafting a letter uh, uh, with uh, many other pastors in Canada, written to uh, Justin Trudeau and the federal government, and uh, we, we we saw some good come of that. Obviously, we saw some noticeable pressure, especially. Uh, as uh, some large media outlets in the United States uh, picked up on the letter. And uh, I mean, it's been clear to us that a lot of our federal politicians do not like the light being mm-hmm. uh, light being put on them from the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe you could speak to, yeah, just uh, another practical response being letter writing. Yeah, I mean, I'd put this under two two broader categories than than um, than just a, a letter writing. I think there's um, we could talk about pressure on government. How how do you apply hmm. effective pressure to government? And part of that is what we might call prophetic exposure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things that you talked there about shining a light on yeah. the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but deeds that are done in a corner don't like. The light yeah, the shone light on them, right? right? And and yeah. I mean, Scripture is clear about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. So mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, the evil and wickedness, you know, does not uh, appreciate mm-hmm. is when the searchlight of um, uh, a scripturally informed view of reality, worldview, is shone mm-hmm. on a situation or a circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Word of God is brought to bear. Uh, on cultural issues, 
the, the things that are done in a corner. The darkness doesn't appreciate that, doesn't like that mm. at all. Mm. And um, it that has a way of actually applying pressure to government. Because you have to remember that governments are um, people who are made up of people yeah. um, who, you know, for the most part are wanting to be re-elected. And so um, they respond to pressure. Let's take it as an example um, in the end, what happened with respect to the um, declared state of emergency in Canada. Right. Um, there was a variety of forms of pressure uh, that were, were coming to bear on on uh, the federal government in Canada mm-hmm. after the announcement of this emergency act. Some of it was um, you know, letter writing and petitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it was um, uh, a more a more direct uh, engagement from politicians within the House and mm-hmm. some some of the debate that was going on, which was again response to pressure from constituents because they were pressurizing their MPs to react to this. Um, but a lot of it was, if you looked at the international coverage mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. federal government here in right. that situation, it was terrible. Right. Uh, in in major um, uh, you know Western news outlets around the world, mm-hmm. the reaction to uh, this you know declared state of emergency was extremely negative. Right, yeah. and so I mean uh, even from Eastern countries, the government of China was even criticizing Trudeau. Yeah, <laughs> you had by the president, <laughs> and of, the president Al- of El Salvador, Salvador as well. Right, was uh, was doing <laughs> yeah. the same thing. Yeah, so you know when you've got when you've got El Salvador and China. <laughs> You I know, don't know, Justin. <laughs> seems a little heavy-handed. Yeah, <laughs> you you could be facing uh, um, like more than you bargain for there. So um, there, there's a, there's a part of the I think part of the prophetic obligation of the church uh, that's on Christians mm-hmm. is to um, we often talk about this on on the podcast that we're prophets, priests, and kings in Christ. And part of the prophetic office is to shine a light yeah. on these situations. So if that means, like uh, the open letter that I wrote that you mentioned, and mm-hmm. that we got other pastors to support it, and uh, and we saw that get that international coverage on Fox and in the UK and in the Australia and the Daily Wire, and I mean, who would have thought it? None of us expected that. We just wrote a letter yeah. from the heart in terms right. of the Word of God about the situation, yeah. and it was picked up. Yeah, th- this situation demands a response. It demanded a response. Right. So there are times when we just have to, to um, as as prophets in Christ, as Christ's ambassadors, we have to represent the crown rights of Christ the King. And mm-hmm. that emergency act was unjust. Uh, it was massive overreach. It was an infringement upon the individual rights and further infringement on the on on uh, the rights of God's people. Mm-hmm. And something needed to be said. So. That's part of speaking the truth, that sort of prophetic exposure. Letter writing, certainly part of it, asking for meetings, you know, actually going to the constituency office of uh, MPs or MPPs or mm-hmm. local authorities and so on, making one's voice heard. I'm reminding of, uh, reminded of um, the fact that even William Wilberforce in his uh, uh, you know, lifelong campaign to end the slave trade in the British Empire uh, got petitions signed from up and down the country and, mm-hmm. and brought them to Parliament. So it wasn't simply the fact that, well, I'm an MP and I'm just making a statement in the House about this. It was that he was engaged at multiple levels, um, it, shining a light on the situation, show, yep. so exposing people. And I think he's a 
just a wonderful example, actually, because he he had a, a um, he systematically with his group, the Clapham sect, mm-hmm. sought to expose the people of England to what was really going on. They didn't know they were ignorant. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what uh, two uh, spoonfuls of sugar was costing uh, people in their lives, in the plantations, in the Caribbean, for example. Um, they were unaware of it. Yeah. So he was he brought it to light, and then he exposed them to what uh, the slave ships were like, what the what the mm-hmm. what man right. theft and enslavement. So what was going on, as you probably know, is that um, uh, African slavers were stealing Africans from the interior mm-hmm. and then selling them to European slavers mm-hmm. uh, who were bringing them across the um, the ocean. And well, this uh, is why Wilberforce would bring politicians to the shipyards to just smell would, the slave right. ships. So mm-hmm. actually, that's actually true. That's actually what quite literally took place. He mm-hmm. would bring people to the shipyards. They would see the ships, see right. the kind of conditions people were in. That's all about shining a light on the situation, right. quickens people's consciences. So that has to be part of what we do. Petitions is part of it. Working with, uh, as far as we can, um, those who are in government that we have access to, and trying to ap- apply this kind of uh, pressure, which involves also prophetic exposure, and that that is um, has a long, long history in the Christian tradition mm. of uh, of in a, especially in what we have called Christendom, the free world of how you know we we get things done, um, and uh, you know we have to remember that many of the people who are in government they don't know the Lord, they they don't know God's law. Um, but they have a conscience, and that conscience can be quickened by appropriate exposure and mm-hmm. pressure. So mm-hmm. that's a that's an, another aspect of what we what we do as God's people. Mm. So you've uh, you've spoken about Nate. Your original question was about uh, individuals writing and calling into their their own mm-hmm. MP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've also talked about uh, specifically about pastors as a class, as a mm-hmm. uh, as a group. Right. Uh, what's the, uh, it, is there a, a meaningful difference in, uh, in the nature or in the impact of working and uh, putting pressure as a, as a bigger collection as, rather than disparate citizens? Yeah, for sure. Because the, uh, the, the church is a societal institution and it's a form of government. Mm-hmm. And whilst we can say the individual, there's the self-government of the Christian person, of course, so we have to govern ourselves in a certain respect, but, uh, but the individual is not a social institution. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the church is, and it's one of the institutions that God has established, like alongside the family, for example, as um, a mediating institution between the individual and the state. So it, uh, these institutions, um, uh, like businesses, like um, like churches, like families, uh, they uh, actually protect the individual from the naked power of the state because they have a sphere of authority and, and competency and responsibility. And so uh, it's actually uh, critically important that the church as a whole, not just individual Christians, um, that the church makes a stand, that the church speaks out. And this doesn't just have to be the case in what we might call uh, uh, Western countries or contexts where there is a historic church-state relationship. For example, in England, where you have the Church of England. Yeah, the established church. The established church, and you've got bishops in the House of Lords. Um, uh, we don't need establishment to see the influence of the church. In fact, the United States is a fantastic example of that. 
of, uh, and in fact, Kuiper, when he was there at the, toward the end of the 19th century um, in mm. America, talked with some amazement about the, the, the influence of the churches, plural, uh, so of the church, the, all the, the, in, in the United States, the way it influenced and shaped government and the tremendous power and influence it had uh, in, in functioning as uh, uh, a mouthpiece for the Lord and as a conscience for the nation. Um, in, he would have argued a more effective way than even the Church of England was doing um, in the United Kingdom. So you don't need establishment to have the church speak with a corporate voice. And uh, because obviously a pastor speaks for a congregation or in, in a uh, church community, mm-hmm. having pastors uh, collectively speak together obviously represents hundreds, thousands of people. Um, and as a mediating institution, which has a distinct uh, role, and of course, in the in the West, a remarkable legacy in history of influence, a, a certain authority. I mean, even look at Canada, un, no formal establishment, certainly informal establishment in Canada, mm-hmm. and um, tremendous influence and impact of the institution of the church in the life of the nation historically. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, when the church is faithful to the Lord, then when the church speaks with an institutional voice, not just individual Christians, um, you're talking then about a mediating institution which is acting in to protect people's freedoms and liberties in the same way that parents can speak for their children and the family is a mediating institution. So uh, there is a there is a power. There's a there's a unity. There's a um, there's a there's a certain weight, certain force that comes with churchmen who represent. Let's face it. Still, even in the West, despite its decline, um, what society are you aware of that has more uh, um, members, mm-hmm. uh, more um, outlets, if I can use that expression, more centres, uh, more uh, um, uh, organisational registered structures mm-hmm. than the church? Right. I don't think there is one. Um, it, it is the the most numerous. It's the most uh, could be. Uh, but because we've lost something of this vision, we we don't use it. But it could be one of the most influential still. Um, but it's certainly um, the most, um, I would have thought, numerous. Um, and, of course, it's more than, we know it's more than a society. It's the Church of the Living God. Um, but even if it were just to be, imagine you had a society that was as big as the church in Canada. That would be the most powerful society in the country, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, if we speak with that collective voice, faithful to the Lord, faithful to his word, you don't need establishment to have a massive impact upon the culture. I would have argued, in fact, if the church, you know, 18 months ago when we had the Reopen Ontario Churches campaign had stood with greater unity alongside that um, and with clarity and passive resistance, um, Canada would have been the first country, Western country out of lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I think the obvious question here would be um, for those who don't find themselves within a church community uh, speaking with a unified voice against, you know, matters of biblically defined injustice, uh, you know, acting as a mediator, what, what do those folks do? Because they don't, they don't find themselves uh, with the ability to, um, to speak uh, collaboratively with a, with a mm-hmm. church community. Well, these are um, obviously some 
can be some thorny prudential mm-hmm. kind of questions where you need wisdom right. in the particular uh, moment and situation and circumstance. And usually you talk to 10 people about this and they've got 10 quite different circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, that's always a, a tricky one to answer without knowing the details of somebody's particular situation. Right. Obviously, um, the first thing is that even if they don't feel their pastoral leadership or church leadership is speaking out clearly on the critical issues, um, that doesn't absolve them as individual Christians of making sure that they speak sure. with a clear voice. They use their influence in their family, in their workplace, with mm. their local um, governing authorities and so forth. We have to do that anyway. I think when it comes to the life of the church, if we're in a situation as faithful believers where we're, we've got leaders that will not, that refuse to speak to mm. the critical issues of righteousness and justice... Mm-hmm who refuse to apply Christ's lordship to life, who refuse to bring the light of God's word to bear Mm. on things like abortion, on things like euthanasia, on things like human identity and sexuality, on things like uh, Bill C-4, on things like uh, the freedom of the church. Um, And they steadfastly refuse to speak to Christ's lordship in these various different areas of life then I think it's incumbent upon the individual Christian to begin with an attempt to persuade them otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that might obviously involves prayer. Um, it might also involve asking to meet with pastors and elders and leaders. It might involve um, giving resources. Oftentimes pastors are so busy with different things um, and with their the pastoral care in the local congregation having been you know, uh, senior founding pastor of Westminster for 10 years, um, you haven't got time to read everything you'd like to read or consider everything you'd like to consider. Often pastors are juggling the the sensitivities, the the foibles, the, the difficulties, the challenges of a, all kinds of people in mm-hmm. their congregation. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's difficult. Um, and so um, they need resources and they need resourcing. It's why we do our pastor's colloquium here to try and be an encouragement to and come alongside pastors in uh, addressing these issues. One of the misnomers that's out there is, well, you know, how can a pastor address epidemiology and mm-hmm. uh, and law and we're not experts in all those areas? Well, that's actually not what's required. Right. You don't need to be, uh, have a, have a, 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 a you know, a, a deep and profound understanding of political science. You don't exhaustive, need to be... Exhaustive, comprehensive. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or an exhaustive understanding of epidemiology right. uh, to speak clearly about what Scripture speaks to clearly, mm-hmm. uh, Christ's lordship, yeah. his authority over his church. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really quite ridiculous it, when you get down to it. I right. mean, you're not a doctor. You can't speak to abortion. Right. Yes, exactly. It's absurd. Yeah. Uh, you know, at a tree, you, know, you can't speak about forestry issues. <laughs> and, and, and of course, that, that would, uh, would give us endless excuses as Christian leaders, wouldn't it? And as mm-hmm. pastors, if we, could, if we could do that, I mean, what would, what would we have left to speak to? Mm-hmm. So um, I think we need to, uh, in that instance, Christians need to first approach it from a position of, of, of charity and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but then boldness and candor as well, uh, and try to provide resources, try to come alongside, um, and uh, uh, try to help you know, church leaders that are stubbornly refusing to see these things, to see them and the importance of the fact that the Word of God itself speaks to these issues. 
that the, the scriptural worldview, that the principles of God's word speak to all of these issues, directly or indirectly. Um, and that, you know, I mean, you just read Psalm 2 how, 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 and, and Psalm 110. How can we mm. not understand the kingship of Christ over all judges, all magistrates, all authorities? So the word of God um, is powerful and needs to be wielded. And the coastlands, the scripture says, wait for his law. So we need to um, challenge our church leaders to make sure that they are they are subject to God's word themselves, and that they are bringing all these issues that are confronting us in the culture into subjection to the word of God. And we try and encourage and exhort, do all the things that Scripture would have us do in that situation. Now I know we're going to go next, which is, but what if they don't respond? Mm-hmm. What if after prayer? after kind and respectful and charitable encouragement and conversation? What if after providing resources? What if after this, my pastor or my leaders still refuse to address these issues in any way and, mm. and, and, and have this kind of direct, uh, be willing to speak to the issues that are concerning the culture and concerning the church and believers within it? then you really do get to a point where you need to consider whether you're in the right church mm-hmm. and whether you need to find a church that is faithfully addressing those uh, those issues and is willing to speak the word of God as Christ's ambassadors to exercise the office uh, of the, the faithfully, the word of God and the sacraments and the exercise of church discipline. Um, and, um, you know, if you've been in a church that's been shut for two years, and there's been no baptisms and communion and there's no singing and uh, there's been no church discipline. Are you actually in a church? I'm not sure you are. Mm. Not sure you're actually part of a church. Uh, so um, if Christ is not Lord in your local congregation, um, uh, you may be in a church building and you may be in an institution that calls itself a church, whether it's a faithful one or not is, 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 is another matter. So at that point, and only in the individual situation can people prudentially know when that point has been reached. I mean, right. you might be trying to, you know, you're seeing development, you're seeing growth, you're seeing more and more responsiveness, and that might be a process of months, even years, uh, where you're faithfully plugging away. Mm-hmm. But if it gets to a point where it's becoming absolutely clear that there's a complete stubbornness and no willingness to 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 do this and address this, then I think you have to the, the individual Christian needs to say, I need to be in a church where I'm being fed. I'm being nurtured. I'm being equipped to speak the word of God faithfully into the culture, mm-hmm. and the where the church is standing up for Christ and His word publicly without shame. Mm. Yeah. Joe, you've just you've just presented a a powerful image of sort of what the church is is capable of and the the, the sheer numbers that it uh, that it represents. Uh, Switching uh, just a little bit here, the the last two uh, ideas or strategies that we talked about were building institutions and forming intentional communities. And I, w- I want you to comment on those on their own merits, but also just w- bearing in mind how what what the great potential of the church as a current organization has. What to, where do where might other institutions fit in that, uh, mm-hmm. how, how can they supplement and support the, uh, the godly resistance? Well, before we uh, end there, and I think that's exactly the right place to finish, um, it's probably worth just commenting on the whole question as well of protest, because uh, 
Um, that's another one that's been quite controversial in that's right. in 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 recent weeks right. uh, with the truckers' convoy. And uh, of course, we did. A, I don't know whether you guys remember. I'm sure you will. It was you know getting on for two years ago, um, or certainly eighteen months ago now, um, where uh, we would we we started doing um, some worship protests right. in uh, yeah. in, at Queen's, in Park. at Queen's Park. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, uh, you know that was called into question by some. How can mm -hmm. you how can you have a worship protest? Uh, yeah. You know, and is protesting really Christian and so on? Well, mm -hmm. I think the first thing to say about this is were these that, Protestants who were criticizing us? Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was about to enough. say. There, oh, you, sorry, uh, you beat me to I the punch there. Preempted, but that's ab <laughs> absolutely right. These these are Protestants. You can come in again. <laughs> uh, who are uh, who are you know grumbling about protests? I think you know a church that's born in the grip of protest, and it wasn't just narrow uh, a narrow sort of ecclesiastical protest that mm -hmm. protestantism had in mind it was the reason that there were of course what eventually became the religious wars um was that there were nations nation states princes uh, who were uh, becoming evangelical they were t they were taking on a protestant evangelical faith and that had implications for the political and cultural life of europe uh and uh, uh those protests led to massive political upheaval so that so the notion that i mean in fact of course luther was asked to comment on the peasants revolt and mm -hmm. and, and so on so uh the reality is is that our our churches were born in uh protest uh and that one of the privileges of being in the in what we call uh, the west christendom which is you know the west is that a sort of the attenuated uh version of christendom it's what we now call it um, is that we have political structures that were that owe much to Christianity that welcome that are supposed to welcome mm -hmm. <laughs> historically have welcomed I should say um, dissent political dissent mm -hmm. and that you can have opposition parties that you do have freedom of speech that you do enjoy freedom of expression these are have been historically recognized in our Western constitutions um, and uh, the uh, the the reality is is if we don't use those constitutional liberties that were bequeathed to us in a Christian culture, um, we will lose them. And uh, um, you know we've seen recently in Canada the attempt to use the you know the the, the strongest part of uh, uh, of the the arsenal of the civil government, you know, martial law effectively, mm -hmm. to quash political dissent, peaceful political dissent. And that's obviously a major problem. So um, uh, Christians um, can and and should uh, protest. Um, now, sometimes people will say, "Well, I don't see protest in the New Testament." I say, "I don't. I don't see uh, um, uh, uh, you know organized process in the Bible. How is that?" Uh, but actually, you know, look a bit closer. Um, you you can see that uh, through. In fact, the Book of Acts is very instructive in this regard. Uh, the, uh, Peter is hauled before the Sanhedrin and has to say to the uh, the authorities, uh, is it right for us to obey God or men? Their preaching was a form of protest. They'd been told to stop preaching unequivocally. Stop preaching in the name of Christ. Sorry, not doing it. Mm. So their preaching becomes a form of protest. In Acts 4.12, where Peter says... Um, uh, for there is salvation in no one else. Mm -hmm. Is there's for there's a, for there is no other name under heaven given to among among men by which you must be saved, mm -hmm. um, which I memorized as a boy. I didn't know to learn till much later. Was actually um, 
uh, a resp- uh, effectively almost a verbatim response to publication of Caesar. That's right. There is no other uh, for there is um, uh, um, salvation in none other than Augustus Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no other name under heaven given to among men by which you must be saved. I should say than the name Caesar Augustus, the mm-hmm. Pontifex Maximus, High Priest. Mm-hmm. So that was that preaching was a form of protest. Um, uh, you you could argue that in Acts two, when against the law, the disciples are hiding, you know, gathering together, and they are in hiding because what they're doing is against the law. They know it; they're in hiding. The Holy Spirit comes upon them in Acts chapter two. Um, so you can, uh, and of course, you look at the ministry of Paul, and he is he's uh, he's being let down in baskets out of cities. Mm. Uh, he's he has to appeal to he appeals to his Roman citizenship to escape flogging. There's all kinds of contexts where you can see that um, uh, Christians were actively uh, protesting the, the, their persecution. And of course, the ultimate act of protest amongst the early church was martyrdom. Mm-hmm. Refusal to say Caesar is Lord, refusal to offer incense on the altar, to participate in the emperor cult, and then to go to your death was the ultimate act of protest. Uh, so protest is important. It's uh, it's legitimate. And um that these Christians used it in a context where they had no real political rights to use it or very limited political right. I mean, Paul did uh, appeal his flogging um, yeah. as a Roman citizen and appealed, of course, all the way to Caesar, um, as we know. Um, but their, 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 their rights in this regard were extremely limited and, and they were only afforded them because of the, the recognition that the Jewish, that the Jews had, not the Christians formerly had at the time. And they were seen as a sect of Judaism yeah. for that period. So um, uh, the, uh, the opportunity to protest um, mustn't be uh, neglected when we exercise pe- peaceful protest. The, the, the question that sometimes get, gets asked, and I've been asked it, um, just that just sort of tips beyond that then is, well, is there ever a time when passive resistance becomes um, violent resistance to tyranny, to totalitarian rule and power? And of course, you know, we've, we're 45 minutes in, so we may have been saved by the bell on dealing with this one in any detail. But uh, um, that that would be an interesting topic for, for a podcast discussion in itself. The reality mm. is, if you look at the English Revolution, um, where a, effectively a Christian parliament was in a revolt against the king. Um, you look at the American Revolution, which again, of a very different nature than the French Revolution. Um, and uh, there are a variety of other historical examples we could point to. Um, you can see that at, that at times, yes, use of the lesser magistrate in um, physical resistance uh, to uh, tyranny is appropriate. And I think, you know, you could look at the example of men like Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. in uh, in Nazi Germany and seeing pastors participate in um, uh, essentially armed resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an interesting film I watched a while back as well, a true story called The Machine Gun Preacher, which was uh, mm, right. uh, very interesting too, raises some very interesting ethical questions. But I think what we could do is maybe save the question of just war slash um, violent resistance to tyranny for for it warrants a, a full episode. Mm-hmm. So protest we need to use, and then just coming on to your your those sort of last two questions there, um, building intentional community first, and then building institutions. What do we mean by intentional community? I guess what we're trying to say there is fundamentally, uh, 
the tendency of North American Christianity, of Western Christianity in general over the last 60, 70 years or so has been to be very uh, individualistic, right? Yeah, atomistic, mm-hmm. yeah. very independent, and often quite consumer-oriented. So, you know, well, what church do you go to? Well, I like this kind of music, so I go there. and um, Or, you know, this is my taste in this, and so I go there. And, oh, this is more convenient, so I go there. And, you know, there's a... This is how Zoom church made sense to a lot of people. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, and, oh, we... we, we our, our, our pastor is a satellite <laughs> pastor, so we go to this extension campus or that extension campus. It's right. more convenient. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and so we just watch the sermon. You know, all these various sort of innovations in inverted commas um, that have actually often served to, to um, undermine Christian community. Mm-hmm. And I think in times of cultural pressure on the church, what you often find is real Christians start to look to one another much more for support, mm-hmm. uh, prayer, uh, resourcing one another, employing one another, going into business with each other, living in the same neighborhoods. Remember the, the the whole former model of a parish church. I mean, people didn't drive to church. Yeah. You know, they didn't catch the train to church. Um, they went to their, their, they walked to their local church community and there wasn't a gymnasium and a, and a hairdressers and a, uh, you know, and a burger joint in the church mm-hmm. lobby. Um, uh, the, it was a sanctuary. And uh, typically nearby would be a school building Mm -hmm. uh, for education, but it was a sanctuary and there'd only be a couple of washrooms. I mean, if you go into the old Toronto churches, you know, you find two loos, you know, and it's an 800 seat sanctuary or whatever. Um, Because the, the sanctuary was seen as a place where you went for the word and sacrament and were sent out into the mission, whereas we've become ghettoized, individualistic. Uh, How can my consumer needs be met? And, um, uh, we sort of ghettoized the church and we have our own gym and this, that, and the other. Uh, whereas I think what, when we think about intentional community, what we mean is being involved in each other's lives mm-hmm. in a meaningful way, right. um, intentionally living close to one another, uh, intentionally um, developing uh, structured relationships with each other so that we are intentionally showing one another hospitality. Yeah. Where people are falling out of work, we are using the diaconal fund to help them. Right. Um, where people need employment, we are looking at the Christian community to employ one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has been something that the Jews did for centuries and Christians did for centuries. And this is kind of, we've lost this sense mm-hmm. of building intentional community. How do we build life together? Um be involved in one another's lives. Uh, and uh, it's not always easy, especially in urban environments. And it often takes a great deal of effort, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. And, and, and especially in suburban and in, in rural environments, it really can be intentionally done. And I know that there are churches in Ontario that are looking at um, uh, buying land yeah. and uh, uh, people moving into to, to intentional community to, to live together, to because that's a form of defense as well, right? right. It is a... It provides something of a hedge. You know, right. you've got, yeah. uh, you're less vulnerable to yeah. um, economic downturns yeah. and... Um, less dependent on the state. Much less dependent yeah, on the state, which is critical. Yeah, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. No, every time, you know, every time the church steps up and right. keeps somebody out of the welfare system if they've lost their job, mm-hmm. every time, you know, you go to, you know, somebody in your church for, you know, medical treatment or whatever it is, the, mm-hmm. the state gets smaller. That's right. Yeah. 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 
So uh, I think that uh, I think that that whole issue of intentional community to reduce that dependence is important. And then finally, institution building. And I would say here, we're talking about primarily health, welfare, education, hmm. um, the as well as of course um, businesses, you know, and uh, um, inst- and and um, uh, educational institutions, welfare institutions. Um, businesses, Christians yeah. building businesses as well. So what are the ways in which we can reduce state dependence in the area of health? What about hospices, for example, especially in a culture riven with euthanasia as, a, as, a, as an ideology? Mm-hmm. Um, what about um, the, uh, the, the use of um, nurses and doctors who are Christians coming together, offering informal clinics, um, dental uh, treatment, charitable dental treatment, um, ways in which, um, I mean, there's uh, even things in the US where there's a, quite a bit more freedom in this area, like um, MediShare, where uh, Christians effect- effectively come together f- for a form of medical insurance. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it works tremendously well. I mean, you hear it advertised frequent, frequently. Um, uh, creative ideas like that in, in the area of health, where we could start addressing those issues, reducing dependence. Big challenge in Canada, of course, is that there is no private healthcare sector. So you have to, there's a lot of hoops to get through with some of this. But in the States, in the UK, those options are very readily available to be developed. And I think in Canada, we have to keep pushing at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, welfare, how, how are we providing um, uh, care in community? First, of course, for the, the household of faith, Christians. Um, how are we providing um, necessary supports? Um, what kind of social financing are we able to provide for those in need? The Akinor Fund is a good starting point. We can go well beyond that and we can start institutions like we were involved in setting up as Westminster Safe Families Canada. That's right. And that's for ch- childcare, short-term care of, of, of at-risk or potentially at-risk children where um, parents need short-term help, assistance, um, so that they can, um, you know, they've lost their job or there's been a, a relational problem and children, you know, looking down the line, if this the situation is handled, could be at risk of neglect. Yeah. How do you take them in? That's just one example. There yeah. are endless examples of what can be done. Yeah. Keeping families together, though, like not that you don't, uh, yes. you don't give up, parents don't give up custody of to their the children. States. No, they yeah. don't. So you, the, the Safe Families doesn't involve any change of custody and it, it prevents children uh, who are at this point have not actually been mistreated um, yeah. ending up in finally with the CAS or with the, whatever the child care agency is in your country uh, Christians can do a great deal to act effectively as the extended family right mm-hmm. uh, to be the extended family mm-hmm. uh, for care in that area and then of critically of course education um, Christian schools Christian institutions mm-hmm. education institutions like the Ezra Institute um, uh, institutions of higher learning these were all the things that we did for centuries, mm-hmm. centuries, and we've stopped doing them. And it's interesting when you compare what we do as missionaries overseas to what we do in our own countries. You know, when a missionary mm-hmm. or missionary agencies work overseas, they're like, well, they're building schools and they're doing hospitals right. and they're doing digging wells and they're giving micro loans for businesses and they're doing all of these things. Mm-hmm. And then back home, we said, well, let the state do it. Right. Let the state do it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just admission. It was never just plant a church. It was do all these other things as an expression of the life of the kingdom of God. And here we've become so statist, we expect the state to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. And we have a worship service. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, worship experience. Or a worship experience where we want our needs met. So building institutions and building intentional community is a huge way forward. And let me let me close with the words of Isaiah 61 that I think captures some of this. Um, thinking about the Messiah's Jubilee, the spirit of the Lord God is on me. I remember Jesus read these words at the beginning of his ministry when he spoke in the synagogue. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach, to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to the prisoners. What kind of uh, prisoners are these? What kind of liberty are we talking about? This is real. This is about jubilee, right? This is the application of this. This is jubilee. This is the meaning of jubilee. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair, that they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. So there's our calling. And it goes on. I love this. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. Hmm. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and you will boast in their riches. In place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, they will, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. And that's the covenant that we have to pray into. Mm-hmm. And this is how we have to build and move forward in terms of, and that was the very essence of what Jesus came to declare. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the, this is the mandate. This is the manifesto for the, the people of God. All right, man. Can you believe we had thought last week we'd get through both of those things in one episode? <laughs> in one episode. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, thanks for bringing us through those uh, those strategies. I hope for our listeners that this has been helpful to get you get you thinking along uh, along the lines of how to respond, how to act. It's been uh, been good to be together. From all of us here at the Ezra Institute, we remind you as always that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To God be the glory, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week. <laughs>